You're listening to Living Cities Forum podcast. This podcast comes as part of our 2022 forum, where we discuss material flows, a theme that examines the global material flows that underwrite our growing built environments. For more, visit livingcitiesforum.org or subscribe to the Amphibian podcast. Thank you, Andrew, and thank you for, to all of the team. It's really an incredible pleasure to be here. It's an incredible pleasure to follow this uh, amazing lineup of um, contributors to this conference. Um, and not an easy act to follow. I must say that there's so many, the kind of sophistication with which so many of the threads that um, really uh, can be, fall under the rubric of material flows um, has been incredible, and I'm incredibly inspired. And I think the thing that uh, is interesting coming at this moment of the conference um, is that a lot has already been said that um, really lays a foundation um, for, uh, and that really is, I think, kind of something that we took for granted in this project, non-extractive architecture, and so uh, it's really helpful to be able to kind of tug on those, um, maybe just like expand a couple, uh, a few of these threads um, uh, a little bit more. Um, while having had them already articulated um, so well. Um, so I think um, what I wanted to, maybe I'll just say a few words about Space Caviar, and Andrew already um, said a little bit, but I think the, um, maybe what's useful uh, for you to know is uh, we, are, we consider ourselves an architecture studio, um, but uh, we put research at kind of front and center of our work as architects. And that's not to say that we don't do built work, um, that we don't produce kind of material flows ourselves, uh, but we try to only do that when we feel that it's somehow articulating um, what some of the themes that we're interested in reflecting on through our research. So we try to use ourselves all, almost as um, guinea pigs um, to really experiment with this idea of how we could think of architecture through a new lens, how we could try putting forward uh, a new paradigm. And in that sense, I think this project, um, non-extractive architecture, is really the, um, you could describe it as kind of the outcome or the accumulation buildup of many years of reflection on the state of architecture today. Um, Andrew mentioned that I'm creative director at Design Academy Eindhoven, um, and I'd like to acknowledge that in many ways, uh, this reflection, this sort of snapshot of where we are uh, that I'll discuss, um, where I think kind of looking back to my own um, career, first of all, as an architecture student, um, and then kind of thinking about looking towards the future is very much driven by um, actually reflecting on the things that I hear from my, my students, from the, uh, the people, um, the, the, the members of the Design Academy Eindhoven community. Um, because in a way, I think that a lot of the things that we discussed today um, are generationally almost taken for granted by a different generation. Like the idea that we, the sort of, that's the premise of um, what we, coming from a certain generation, I'm speaking myself, I graduated in 2003, uh, kind of understand as architecture, I think to some extent has already been replaced. It's already uh, kind of, um, we've already uh, kind of moved beyond that, um, or at least our, our students have already moved beyond that. So in a way, I think what we're really trying to do is to um, reflect a little bit on how this can 
be something that how we can kind of offer some sort of framework for mating that not into um, a sort of a, a, a desire that's repressed by the, our institutions such as Design Academy or RMOT and so on, but that's actually recognized by those who are in positions of leadership. So I wanted to start from uh, this image, um, which is actually one of the most reproduced images in history. It's the, um, you probably know it as the blue marble. Um, it's an image that was taken in 1972 uh, at a distance of 20 29,000 kilometers from planet Earth by the crew of the Apollo 17 mission. Um, and the thing that made this image so incredibly unforgettable uh, to us um, as kind of a, a, one of the touchstones of our culture was the fact that it was um, the first time that the planet Earth was photographed from the outside in its whole. There's a kind of this, uh, the, the, the overview of our, um, what Buckminster Fuller, to, to overquote a little bit more Buckminster Fuller, called Spaceship Earth, this kind of collective vehicle upon which we as a species travel through space. Um, and the, 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 one of the consequences of this, um, the taking the, the, this photograph was the uh, birth, the kind of definition, the kind of un, uh, for the first time being struck by the overview effect, by the, the kind of understanding of our condition uh, and that kind of the, 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 our position within something that's much larger than us, that is the galaxy, and most of all, most importantly, the fragility of the um, echo of the uh, of the uh, habitat that we occupy. And in the same year, um, and this may be a co coincidence, but I think that in a way, um, the two things are to some extent um, connected. Uh, a group, of, in fact, it was started a couple of years earlier. Um, a group of scientists and um, researchers at MIT put together, began to kind of think about um, the way in which we have achieved a level as a species of domination, of technological dominion um, of uh, this planet, of this um, spaceship Earth, um, such that we need to begin to consider the long-term implications of our actions, and um, they the way that in which they decided to kind of really begin to kind of unpack and investigate this idea was uh, to put together a research um, a group that could begin to kind of project towards the future these uh, a number of lines, uh, trajectories that involved, I don't know, material production, um, the uh, consumption of resources, energy requirements, demographic den uh, density of cities, demographic um, growth, and so on, and to begin to consider what that would actually mean uh, if it was kind of projected forward indefinitely. So thinking about these two images uh, really kind of summed up the, the, the kind of like thinking, uh, seeing the world, this overview, and thinking about what are the consequences of for uh, within this kind of closed system uh, led to the publication of this book, um, the, uh, the Limits of Growth. Um, and that was really the first time, I think, that uh, one of the most kind of important questions that we as a species have ever uh, had to face um, was uh, posed to us. Um, the question of what is actually going to happen if one of the kind of fundamental assumptions that underpins um, our contemporary uh, culture uh, is allowed to uh, be kind of projected, extended into the future indefinitely. And of course, I mean, we're in 1972, we're in a 
uh, a moment of uh, sort of discovery of the possibilities of uh, calculation of computation um, and so obviously this being MIT there was uh, a natural um, inclination to feed this into some sort of software into a, a computer I think not so much because any of the calculations were not possible to do uh, by hand but more because uh, in a way the um, the fact that the output the outcome was being um, somehow calculated by a machine gave it a level, it gave it an aura of um, indisputability, uh, uh, something that, that kind of elevated it beyond the, um, even the kind of uh, collective um, opinion of this group of uh, 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 extremely accomplished scientists. Um, and the result was this, um, the, the projection of the kind of levels of growth, the kind of um, uh, level to which humanity had achieved uh, domination over nature would probably um, uh, was probably such that uh, the, the present rate of economic and population growth would probably not last that much beyond 2100 um, and that from the year 2050 onwards a certain kind of collapse of this ecosystem would begin um, and in order to do this, they examined five basic factors, which were uh, f um, food per capita, pollution, industrial output, population, resources, births, and so on, uh, deaths, uh, and began to model what the uh, consequence, I think the thing that was um, really important about this was uh, the idea of beginning to model these things not individually but as a system, like how each one of these factors, how the kind of variations uh, would uh, play out between um, between the different factors. Um, and this was really kind of a, an attempt, I think the first time that there was a, a question was raised in a moment of extreme, up to, towards the end of a moment of extreme optimism, this, uh, Indy referred to it a little bit, this kind of moment of uh, post-war uh, 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 euphoria over the um, kind of the, the, the possibilities of technology, the way in which um, uh, accelerating technologies could improve uh, the quality of life across uh, for vast numbers of people, uh, that maybe there was a problem, maybe something actually in this uh, model needed to be questioned. Um, and so you can see uh, that there's a, uh, a there's kind of a moment of inflection. Um, in some of these, we're probably kind of somewhere around that right now. Um, and I mean, this, there was a huge amount of debate around this model. It, was, it wasn't kind of taken um, as uh, a simple kind of um, uh, truth. But nevertheless, even to this day, it's not exactly clear that it was wrong. There's, no, there's nothing um, here that can kind of be uh, uh, disputed um, and that it's a, a, that's kind of particularly off track. Um, and so what became incredibly, uh, the, the combination of these two things from the late 70s, that um, uh, the early 70s, 1972, this moment in time, it suddenly became clear that this condition of Earth as a closed ecological system was something that needed to be taken into consideration in, at all levels of human activity. Um, and because a closed ecological system is something that does, has in fact no kind of uh, energy exchange, material exchange with the outside. I mean, energy, obviously, there's a constant influx of um, uh, energy coming from our closest star, with, which is the sun. But if you think about uh, the exchange of matter, of, of atoms, um, it's actually kind of incredible to think that every year, uh, 16 tons, exactly 16 tons, I mean, 16 tons is nothing. It's probably like 
I don't know, the, the, the weight of that um, sheet glass on that, um, uh, on that facade of the building, that is the total amount of matter that is being uh, expelled that is leaving planet Earth uh, for space, never to return. Um, and probably an equivalent amount, more or less, in the form of meteorites and, uh, uh, and, and space debris of various kinds is entering. So we're talking about a system that is effectively closed, uh, within which something is happening. There is a dependency has been created um, upon growth. Uh, and this growth is something that we have come to depend on in order for our uh, social structures and our organization, our collective uh, organization as a society and as a community to um, depend. And so it can become, uh, and, and, and that's kind of just to plot it incredibly simply, um, that's what we're looking at. We're looking at uh, a situation upon which, with the passing of time, uh, the growth, the size of the economy is growing. It needs to grow. Uh, not only does it need to grow, it needs to grow exponentially. It's actually kind of building, it's a kind of a compound number that's actually uh, building upon itself to accelerate the rate of growth. And if we add these two things up, if we kind of place one on top of the other, it becomes incredibly clear and kind of obvious that these two things are entirely incompatible. It's simply not possible with an enclosed eco uh, uh, ecological system to support in, an indefinite growth. Um, and this is something that, you know, there's a lot of debate uh, following the Club of Rome conference, a lot of debate following the um, publication of Limits to Growth. But the debate was all about the speed, the projections, like whether it was actually going to be 2,100, whether it was going to be a little bit before, whether it was going to be a little bit after. There was no debate. It's like there, to this day, there is no debate because uh, around the kind of accuracy of the conclusions in if projecting this line indefinitely steeper and steeper um, vertically to the fact that this at some point is going to cause some form of implosion for the simple reason that that is dictated by the uh, laws of thermodynamics. It's like the first law of thermodynamics that matter can be, uh, um, that energy can't, um, it can be transformed, uh, but it can't, uh, it can't, the, the, there's, the, the, it's not going to, it can't be created or destroyed. It's, it can simply be transformed from one uh, form to another. And the same for material. Material will uh, gradually, over a period of time, through a process of entropy, uh, essentially degrade in quality. It'll become a kind of a, uh, a gunk. Uh, or um, various kind of forms of compound, but it's actually never going to disappear. It's like it, it, we're, we're stuck with it. So as this degradation uh, occurs, and this degradation is something that in nature has always existed. It's, a, it's, a, it's one of the fundamental laws of nature. But the fact that we have built a society that is founded on the idea that this degradation needs to be accelerated was a moment of great shock. It was a moment of kind of really kind of realization that we are on a track, a railway track towards a precipice. And I think the thing that's kind of most, um, that, that really uh, is most extraordinary about this condition that we've put ourselves in um, is the fact that nobody can give a good explanation of why this is a good idea. Like why is this actually something that we collectively want to invest in? Um, it's something that we are, uh, it's, it's pretty clear that we're, we have this um, collective tendency to, um, within the kind of 
social framework, economic framework, uh, productive framework that we've created, to be able to not project ourselves, to not be able to uh, not be able to project um, any sort of long-term horizon um, into the future. And of course, the, uh, this, one of the obvious answers to this is, well, we're, going, we're an incredibly sophisticated um, uh, society in technological terms, so we can probably design our way out of this. Um, and this was, I think, uh, especially in the kind of 19th century, when there was uh, the moment of um, kind of technological acceleration, when there was this moment of really transformation of our um, uh, society into this uh, model uh, in which we were um, became dependent on uh, perpetual growth. Um, England, 1965-64, was a moment of um, this really kind of a height of uh, uh, almost a creation of a new belief system uh, upon which the economy um, came to depend. An economist who is called William Stanley Jevons actually came up with um, observing the fact that the um, coal industry had gradually had become uh, increasingly efficient over a period of years, had become really like increasing the uh, acceleration towards uh, the production of uh, the ability to transform coal into useful work, into uh, mechanical labor, um, observed the fact that there's a fundamental fallacy in the idea that creating more and more and more efficient machines, that the idea that we can actually kind of design our way out of this problem, for the simple reason that, uh, in fact, uh, and this has come to be, uh, come to be known in economics as um, the Jevons paradox, due to the simple fact that by making more and more uh, efficient machines, we're actually, uh, the, the result of that is actually to increase demand rather than reduce demand because Obviously, in a market economy in which we are taking for granted the fact that um, none of the externalities produced by the productive process, so in the case of coal, uh, for example, uh, the emission of CO2 into the, um, into the atmosphere, uh, the cost of the additional, of the acceleration and efficiency of these machines is actually being paid by nature, by the environment, and rather than being paid for by the end user. So efficient, what is essentially the only thing that's becoming more efficient is the ability to offload into as, as a kind of a, a collective, as an externality that's being paid by the whole of society or the whole of humanity, um, as we can see today, uh, rather than being passed on to the um, end user. So. In all systems where we are uh, kind of become dependent on the idea that we can actually design our way out of the problem by uh, relying on the fact that we can create more and more efficient machines, there is a problem because we are actually going to, unless we find ways to counterbalance the kind of um, uh, increase in uh, consequences, increase in externalities, unless that can be somehow added back into the budget sheet, uh, we're going to find that simply the only consequence of all of this is an increase in, um, in, in demand. Uh, and in fact, that's something that's been, um, Indy was talking before about uh, electric cars. One of the things that's been um, uh, actually noticed in countries that have a high adoption of electric cars is the, the, the largest consequence of being much more fuel efficient is that people tend to drive more. And this, I think, kind of, so trying to kind of bring this back to architecture, where does this, um, what does the, all of this mean for, um, for us as uh, designers?
This is the, um, it's the Wool Exchange in Bradford um, that was built shortly after that, um, uh, the Jevon, Jevons wrote the book the, on the coal question um, that gave rise to this idea of the um, Jevons paradox. Um, and shortly before this building was uh, built, um, John Ruskin was invited to Bradford. John Ruskin at the time was probably the most admired, the most feared um, art and architecture critic um, in the UK. And he was invited to Bradford to somehow assist or to, in a way, curate the assignment of this um, wool exchange to an architect. An architect needed to be selected, so they had to uh, identify one, and, and everybody was hoping that John Ruskin would kind of give his imprimatur, his stamper of approval to this project and select the most appropriate architect and therefore kind of make, um, make it into somehow an icon of uh, the great, um, how can you say, prosperity of the city as, uh, as brought about by the uh, wool exchange. As it turns out, um, John Ruskin took the opportunity to instead deliver um, a long monologue that was then later transcribed and became a small publication called Traffic, uh, in which he explained in great detail why he was not in the least bit interested in this project, why he wanted to have nothing to do with the wool exchange. And the reason that he gave, kind of in a nutshell, was that for him, this building, the only thing that was significant about this project and this building, the aspiration to build a new uh, wool mill, uh, wool exchange, was um, that it was a temple to the goddess of what he described as getting on. Um, and he wanted to have nothing to do with that because that was a, a dead end, as he could see it, for architecture to become somehow a celebration of simply an acceleration in productive ability and therefore a kind of a collective prosperity that was based on consumption. And I think what's interesting about this, um, his, his point in this book, is that architecture it's, is unable to escape from somehow reflecting the bigger picture of what it stands for, the society within which it, um, it is produced, the, uh, the community that erects it. Somehow architecture comes to not just symbolize that, but almost immortalize it to capture uh, and to reflect and to um, uh, congeal um, for, in a certain moment of time the, the values of, uh, of a community. And this is something that to this day, I think, is um, an absolute truth of who we are as architects. We are, in a way, trapped inside a situation where we have no choice but to reflect a, a series of conditions which may, we may agree with, we may not agree with, but in which we are somehow compelled to become part of this mechanism of growth in which we are uh, part of a system that is essentially predicated on an increment, uh, an increment in, a continuous increment in our productivity. And this is kind of a diagram. Maybe we think that the internal combustion engine is the most important uh, uh, invention of the 19th century. Uh, maybe we think it's the most kind of transformative um, uh, idea that we have uh, come up with in terms of engines. But I think that that's absolutely not true. The, most, the, the real engine that drives the, uh, all other engines is uh, the engine of growth. Uh, this idea that every single um, action uh, that we undertake, regulated by the free market, the, what Adam Smith called uh, the invisible hand of the market, 
is essentially this. It's not simply about creating a, a, a projection, a continuation, an extension of our current wealth towards the future, but unless that wealth is actually growing and increasing, then we are essentially doomed. And that's why uh, a recession technically is actually not when the economy is contracting, but when it stops growing. And we all know how completely terrified we are of the possibility of, um, uh, of a recession. So we're every, it may kind of not seem completely apparent to us, but within the kind of framework within which we operate as architects, but also within any other profession, the underlying um, impetus in a way is a continuous measurement against this dogma of growth, of, of, of perpetual expansion within a closed ecosystem, within a system which we all know very well is simply not capable of supporting that continuous expansion. Um, and the reason why I think that, uh, like I was saying, this is something that touches every kind of activity, every um, facet of our, li our collective lives uh, within, um, especially within kind of, well, especially within free market economies, there, there is nothing else apart from possibly North Korea that is uh, not a free market economy today, uh, is because construction is such an important part of that. And this is just kind of like looking at Australia specifically, third largest industry in Australia for the number of people and employees. Um, and the share in the GDP, uh, massively important, uh, in fact disproportionately important compared to um, the uh, number of, uh, the, it, 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 it's, yeah, uh, third, num third largest number of people it employs, but actually even larger than that um, in terms of uh, percentage of, uh, probably second largest in terms of revenues. And obviously around this is, uh, this is not just architecture, but it's the entire construction industry. There's a whole number of downstream jobs, downstream supply chains that feed um, this industry. Um, and therefore, if this sort of um, imperative of feeding the machine of growth applies to anyone, uh, it applies, it's probably most prevalent in the, in the minds of architects. The idea that somehow when we come out of architecture school, what we've been taught in architecture school is that we need to start building. This is like if you're not building, if you're not producing, if you're not somehow part of um, this productive, if you're, if you're not immediately finding ways to um, uh, 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 project into the uh, reality of material space around you, your identity, then something's wrong. Then you're, you're, you're essentially on the road to failure. And I think that this is very interesting to kind of look at where this culture, at what point this culture, I think it's been pointed out many times this morning, starting from Uncle Dave through to um, uh, Indy and, and, and really kind of also on, on to Myling and so on, um, that there is somehow, um, there, there are many other ways of being a designer that are possible. And yet, within architecture school and within the institutions that we've um, that we that, that have shaped who the designers of today are uh, there is somehow this, this th th there's a certain kind of latent idea of what is to be expected of architects what and also of what architects expect from from themselves and i think that in many ways it goes this image is possibly one of the most powerful um, uh, in terms of summing up actually uh, a certain 
sort of assumption, um, an, an, an immutable assumption about who, what an architect represents within society. And this, of course, is the hand of Le Corbusier, photographed in 1924 over uh, Plan Voisin, uh, a plan that he proposed to demolish um, uh, following World War One, following, uh, obviously, we know the uh, condition of uh, Parisian slums in the um, post-World War One era, uh, the condition of the housing fabric, the condition of uh, urban life at that time, demolish two uh, square mile, two by two square mile plot, and build a number of high-rise towers in which offices are concentrated, within which uh, productive activities are concentrated, all built out of concrete, all. Um, uh, surrounded by retail uh, within a sea of green verdant and this is the new Paris this is uh, the project that is um, in a way going to become a paradigm for um, the, the uh, cities all around the world and this image this um, a certain and of course this is something then Corbusier went, went on to develop much further through um, Villa Radieuse and uh, all sorts of other projects all around the world but I think that this project was particularly interesting because um, it was, in a way, the first time that his urban vision was articulated, but also because it was actually the first time that the cards were revealed. And in a way, he was incredibly um, uh, smart and um, brilliant in the way in which he was capable of uh, activating two parallel channels. One, uh, the narrative of uh, the, the architect as savior, uh, the architect whose hand hovers over the city, the kind of the hand of God. It's, it's actually kind of interesting to think about the position of the hand um, with respect to Michelangelo's creation. Uh, it's really the, the, the hand uh, the, of the architect touching the city and kind of the, the, the city is being begotten uh, by this um, figure which is so much larger. Uh, and therefore, the architect as uh, really kind of the savior of the human condition, the, the, the ability to deliver a quality of life that is completely different. Um, and on the other hand, the, um, an actual brutal honesty about what the implications were. And um, if uh, he was actually uh, in, uh, interviewed about like how he was going to be able to fund this, um, and his answer was, well, it's going to actually raise the price of real estate by five times. Uh, and of course, and what about the inhabitants of the slums who were living there before? Uh, well, these um, troglodyte will be relocated into the suburbs, and that's the, the end of the story. So you kind of have these two narratives that, are, that he was capable of sustaining, not just at that moment and relatively unquestioned, but for um, the rest of uh, uh, the rest of his career, the rest of his life. Um, and that's something that, of course really becomes part of the package, the identity of the architect as, we, uh, it, as it came to be understood and that I think is really captured uh, incredibly well by um, Gary Cooper in, in, in the in interpretation of um, Fountainhead, uh, Howard Rourke, the, the heroic architect. This image could in fact be the kind of the counterpoint to the previous image. It could be Howard Rourke's hand looking down on the city and hovering over it. Um, and I think it's... Um, difficult to over, overstate the extent to which this idea of the architect as savior really became a paradigm. It became something that kind of deeply permeated um, our culture as, um, uh, as architects and carried with it a whole number of um, uh, connotations and uh, kind of parallel ideas. One of which was, um, so this idea of the kind of the architect as purveyor of modernity, democracy, um, liberator, uh, growth, um, but also of concrete. Um, 
So if, if we kind of look at this uh, material specifically, which I think is just one of uh, many threads through which we could sort of unpack this, uh, this paradigm that's represented by Le Corbusier, Howard Rourke, um, the, the REM hope uh, model, um, is uh, this idea of uh, a attachment to a specific material, the promise of a specific material, which in this case um, is concrete, and which, of course, the creation of... Uh, Plan voisin, viradieuse as a, a, a paradigm that is to be replicated elsewhere, is to be uh, is to become kind of a model, a template. Of course, we know how that played out, um, and uh, but that's just the, in a way the beginning of the problems um, of this model. The, um, a dependency on a certain material uh, that was extremely uh, seductive, extremely um, efficient within uh, a certain framework, within a certain kind of an, uh, idea. But then, as we uh, know, uh, actually kind of turned out to be uh, possibly the most catastrophic move that any architect could possibly have made was to introduce concrete into the um, global bloodstream um, and, into, and, and, and make it into something that we could uh, become, that we, that we did effectively become uh, reliant on. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end with um, CO2 uh, emissions. Um, because uh, when we start to really kind of look at the list of externalities that this, uh, this single material, and I mean, there are many that we could take, as we know that concrete is obviously one of the worst. But um, looking at, uh, for example, concrete's reliance on sand, sand after water is actually the most widely depleted material at a planetary scale. Um, and this particular image of river erosion on the Mekong River um, near Ho Chi Minh City uh, is uh, a perfect example of the ways in which externalities operate within the global supply chains of architecture. They're really kind of, the, the scale, the distance, the removal um, is extreme, but it doesn't even end there because then, of course, these have secondary consequences, like the whole um, uh, culture of depletion around this, the, the, the industry that's born around this, uh, the scarcity that comes when these start, materials start to run out has all sorts of uh, secondary order consequences such as wars even uh, erupting around sand or the um, depletion of um, river, uh, of, of beaches in uh, Morocco and so on. And, and all of this is something that is actually kind of somehow institutionalized within the architecture programs within the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the model that we um, put forward to students to aspire towards a certain idea. And the way this um, image, I think, captures it incredibly well, which is why we put on the cover um, of Non-Extractive Architecture, which is Mies van der Rohe's kind of celebration of this act of extraction, um, the kind of use of nature in a compositional way uh, that frames it really like a painting. Uh, but that completely uh, uh, somehow immortalizes this idea that nature is f there free for the taking um, and can somehow become uh, unquestioningly um, a support for our, um, uh, our, our productive activity as a profession. Um, and this is really um, something that uh, runs so um, incredibly deep, not just within architecture, but to 
uh, all the way from uh, Malthus to Charles Darwin, this idea that somehow there is something good about this selfish gene, about the idea of uh, uh, savage depletion, um, that this is something that's actually necessary for the survival of society. Of course, that's actually probably right within a growth-based economy, but as soon as we begin to look at the consequences of that, of the uh, uh, extreme nature of this um, taking this, uh, these ideas to the extreme, it becomes extremely problematic. And, and this is why an alternative paradigm is so um, incredibly important and, uh, and, and urgently needed. Um, and the project, um, uh, Non-Extractive Architecture, was in many ways um, the, the uh, consequence of having, by complete um, chance, come across this book by uh, Tim Jackson, which is, uh, I mean, I think the title says it all, Prosperity Without Growth. Like, can we actually question this idea that depletion is necessary? Is it something that's kind of so deeply embedded within our um, uh, 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 productive model that no alternative is possible? Or could we actually think about some, uh, a different model? And to, I, I, I think this is an incredibly interesting and important book um, that I think uh, is uh, urgently needed reading in more or less any field. Uh, but the thesis of the book is essentially that we need to fi uh, find a way to transition away from the hydrocarbon intensive activities that are um, so uh, disproportionately uh, damaging to um, the environment and uh, construction, mining, utilities, um, even agriculture are really good examples of that. And services and personal services, uh, distribution and so on, are a completely different model. And his idea, um, uh, um, his definition of um, prosperity without growth rests primarily on redefining what we mean by prosperity. And I think that this is the kind of the fundamental point, like how do we actually kind of alter uh, the goals of what we do such that we can uh, be aiming towards uh, an idea of prosperity that is actually possible to sustain rather than one that is um, essentially um, kind of putting us on the path to uh, destruction. Um, yeah, after Bucky Fuller, probably Cedric Price is the second most overquoted. Uh, Dan Hill and I have a kind of an informal competition who can uh, stick him into more lectures. Uh, but I think the point of, um, this is a fundamental point, like how do we actually rethink what our goals are rather than defaulting to this idea that construction is necessary. And this was really when we were invited by VAC to um, spend some time in Venice and to kind of reflect on uh, a certain topic. Um, this was why um, the idea of uh, non-extractive architecture seemed so kind of incredibly interesting to look in, at in that uh, uh, specific space to kind of really take this idea of a new idea, of a new definition of prosperity and begin to unpack what that means for um, architecture. And this is a quick sketch that, uh, that Dan was one of the first people um, I spoke to about this project. And, and, uh, and he had this beautiful way of talking about um, this in relation to Venice, which is a city of stone built on trees, that essentially we need to rewind to a city uh, which is made of renewable resources that leaves the stone uh, where it came from. Um, and the... Uh, Volume one um, of uh, non-extractive architecture was uh, actually done during lockdown. We had intended to make it into the sort of the culmination of um, this first year of research. It ended up being the other way around, where uh, during lockdown we actually spent some time trying to think about what could be a framework for organizing 
some of the sort of fundamental principles of a rethinking of the architectural profession. Like, how can we actually completely rewind to the point where um, a new paradigm can be really kind of going back to first principles, like taking nothing for granted, no assumptions, like actually really sort of um, uh, attempting to think the unthinkable and question um, every single uh, kind of point of the way. And uh, the book, um, I have a copy here actually, I'll leave it um, out afterwards um, so anybody wants to have, take a quick look, but just some of the, very quickly, some of the kind of the key points that emerge from this and that somehow also shaped um, the project. The first being language. Um, the idea that uh, one of the things that we were trying to deal with was the, uh, the fact that language is so incredibly important, um, but it's also in a way, one of the most sort of, it's one of the kind of points of crisis within architecture today because the word sustainability has become so incredibly threadbare um, that we just, it, essentially, I mean, you'd have to really kind of go deep into a rabbit hole of um, uh, decoupling um, on, in an abs absolute decoupling, relative decoupling. Uh, what we actually mean by this word is so, uh, completely depending on context, uh, so distorted and instrumentalized, uh, often for the purpose of selling, that it's essentially become useless. And so the first stage was to really begin to try to set, um, uh, uh, to equip ourselves with a set of words that could somehow be a little bit more specific and precise. And that's where the idea of uh, talking about, instead of talking about architect uh, sustainable architecture, trying to talk about non-extractive architecture, or trying to talk about designing without depletion, like is this actually something that is possible or is it something that we're somehow uh, uh, condemned to continue? And that then lead, led on in fact to a lot of other um, uh, conversations that I think have really been uh, already kind of, we, we've gone quite um, into some detail on that, the idea of development actually possibly needing to become something much more like stewardship the role of the architect which we so kind of instantly uh, associate in our minds to the organization of space if if we if 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 no but what about time what if nobody's thinking about the long term view what if we actually completely abandon the question of space and we really kind of began to focus on uh, the idea of time the problem of complexity the fact that our buildings have become uh, so unbelievably complex that we actually it's completely impossible to trace um, in any way the origin uh, or to be able to control um, the origin of any of these, um, uh, any of the single components. Um, and just kind of looking at how this is something that's actually the, uh, a consequence of extended supply chains that have made it possible to source materials from the other side of the world where it's much more difficult to have any sort of control over um, uh, the quality of components, that, uh, the, the health levels that are associated with the long-term cohabitation with those components, uh, the externalities that are being created by their production. Invisibility. Supply chains are obviously something that are problematic, not simply um, because of the uh, consequences for the places of origin, but because they make invisible to us, and this one could argue is actually kind of the primary purpose of the supply chain, is not necessarily simply to connect us to resources that are not available where we are, 
but to actually disconnect us from the, cons the, the, the consequences of the extraction of those materials. Um, so the, the supply chain as a mechanism of um, the creation of invisibility, of removal, um, is I think possibly um, the most uh, significant invention of the 20th century and also kind of produces amazing images like this logjam of empty ships attempting to get back to Asia during the uh, Suez Canal crisis. Um, and yeah, the, uh, the, 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 the creation of an absence in our minds of any sort of awareness or understanding of the productive geographies um, that are uh, underlying our cities. And so I think it's really interesting to think about this in a way as a form of urbanism, like the cities that we live in, this is the counterpart, and yet we don't talk about this, we don't think about it. There's something that's kind of completely distant and removed um, and erased from our consciousness. Inequality, the fact that, in fact, when we talk about um, extraction, when we talk about um, a dependency um, on... Um, uh, in a, uh, we're very often talking about uh, labor. We're not simply talking about materials. So I think we could equally talk about... We're talking about material flows in this conference, but we could equally be talking about... Um, architectures, a certain model of architecture's dependency um, on inequality. And in general, this is, yeah, um, ah, rather low-res uh, photo of a, a beach in Morocco that's been completely stripped of sand in order to feed the uh, productive um, uh, the, uh, the production of urban space essentially uh, for it to become concrete because the thing that's I think little understood also is that sand is uh, not something the kind of the, the grade of sand that's needed to produce concrete for buildings is not the kind of sand that you find in the, in the Sahara Desert it's actually typically found on riverbeds it's, it's a very kind of specific kind of sand and so these are all um, kind of topics that we attempted to unpack uh, in greater detail through um, uh, the book. Uh, a few essays that I'd shout out are um, uh, Luke Jones' um, Carbon Tectonic, an incredibly interesting investigation of a certain kind of um, the idea of architecture as, in a way, a marketplace of carbon. Uh, an exchange, an examination of the flows, also informed very much by Jane's work, um, uh, between uh, productive landscapes of the forest and elsewhere, um, and, and, and so on. I mean, I'll, I'll bring the copy out afterwards and you can take a look, but I think the, thing, the, the, the fundamental idea that emerged from this is, uh, from the series of reflections and conversations of Volume 1, was the kind of collective misunderstanding. We've talked a lot about the, um, the misunderstanding that architects, what architects do, um, and, and, and the kind of misplaced assumption about architects uh, for, of themselves. But I think the most important thing is a misunderstanding of what actually needs to be done. Uh, we don't need to make more efficient buildings. That's not the point. The point is we need to fundamentally rethink, like really kind of rewind to step one about um, and examine what it means to build in such a way that we're not simply offloading the consequences of our um, actions onto someone else, somewhere else. Uh, very briefly, uh, just kind of like flipping through, um, the, 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 the exhibition in Venice was also really, the, the, this year of research was an attempt to build something that was a bit like kind of across a hybrid between a workshop, uh, an exhibition, a research uh, lab, all rolled into one in which we were also kind of really trying to redefine uh, what it means to make an architecture exhibition. Um, 
a lot of uh, experimentation happening on site. We made a point of making all of the of doing a lot of material experimentation on site because the the, the point being that if you can do this, including uh, the production of um, uh, samples of dowel laminated timber, if you can do this inside the Palazzo in Venice, then you more or less you can do it anywhere. Um, and then the uh, most, um, uh, I think, the, 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 the kind of most significant output of this uh, being ultimately a network. And I think we see ourselves as uh, designers of networks, of situations of encounter, of uh, bringing people together and kind of creating somehow a movement uh, more than anything else. Um, and I think just to kind of conclude, uh, I think that if we really need to think of a kind of a counterpoint to Howard Rourke, to uh, the hand of Le Corbusier over the city, um, I think it's uh, really um, incredibly exciting uh, to think about a figure like Uncle Dave who took us this morning um, on a, yesterday morning, sorry, on an uh, incredibly beautiful walk and kind of demonstrated a granular knowledge of the landscape that is really something that um, uh, is completely absent from the architectural curriculum today. And what if we were to really rethink uh, this idea of the architects, it's been said many times today uh, to the point it doesn't really need to be uh, stated again, but it's the idea of taking care, uh, being responsible for a community, for a landscape, for a fragment of earth somewhere. It's just such an incredibly beautiful um, and exciting thing and really kind of understanding where materials come from, where they go to uh, and so on. Um, I'm just going to show super briefly because I've, I've run over time. Uh, we in our work attempt to um, try to, in, uh, we do a lot of kind of pro uh, relatively short workshop-based um, uh, projects that somehow attempt to uh, test whether these ideas are actually um, viable. Um, and one of these was, was just like the, the, the two weeks ago um, inaugurated, uh, was a, very, a small project for Terraform, a music festival based in Milan, um, that looked at the possibility of actually going to the source of materials and also using materials um, that are the consequence of extreme weather conditions. Uh, so this is a storm that took place in 2018 in northern Italy that actually completely wiped out 800,000 uh, hectares of uh, woodland um, and created an incredible um, over uh, surplus um, of wood which would have rotted if it hadn't been taken away. So the community went to a great, uh, made a, a very significant investment in storing all of this wood but unless they're able to, they had to get loans from the bank to be able to kind of transport it off site and so on and therefore um, really need to uh, use this wood as quickly as possible. So. What was most interesting, I mean, the project itself was um, simple, it was a stage, but being able to go to the uh, place of origin and to really kind of speak to the people who had taken care of collecting this material and had kind of spoken, and then kind of creating a workshop situation around the production of this um, structure was incredibly exciting, and I th I j it's just like a it would be so exciting if architectural projects could be more like that, could be more about a community coming together to uh, produce something that were, that, in which there was a real connection uh, to the place of origin. And the, yeah, these are a few photos of um, uh, the um, final uh, pro uh, project installed. Um, and then, uh, just as a very last one, um, I just wanted to very briefly just show you some another project that was inaugurated just last week at Triennale uh, was a direct outcome of the um, research in Venice um, uh, looking at the ways in which 
some of the oldest techniques of building and some of the newest could be combined um, usefully um, in a way that could produce new forms, um, but in a way that uh, is also kind of has um, useful consequences um, environmentally. And exhibitions, as we know, can be one of the most damaging, one of the most wasteful uh, uh, in terms of the production of displays that typically get thrown away. Uh, there are two ways you can go around uh, that problem. One is to attempt to reuse uh, the display systems, or the other is to just use a material that's uh, universally available. And uh, together with WASP, uh, which is an incredible Italian company that's a world leader in um, uh, production of architectural scale 3D printers, and Rice House, which is a company that looks at how really poor materials like mud can be really used at an architectural scale thanks to byproducts of the food industry such as um, uh, binders uh, derived from rice husks, uh, it's possible to um, begin to produce uh, quite um, sophisticated forms that actually have incredible um, structural integrity. So uh, this was actually really an experiment in kind of beginning to, we've done a lot of tests in Venice on a very small scale. Um, in Milan, uh, we began to scale this up to uh, the scale of an exhibition display system and printed on site, inside Triennale, moving the printer um, through the space, all of these displays, which at the end of the exhibition will be um, it was really like a construction item. It was like a, a really kind of hardcore, um, really like a, a more, much closer to a building site than uh, typically an exhibition display was. But the result was um, that the product at the end of all of this can actually be returned to the fields uh, just outside Milan, which is where all of this um, earth came from in the first place. And. Um, I think it's uh, obviously, I think this is uh, a very early test and, and what we're trying to do now is to really ex look at how this can be scaled up to something um, much larger and uh, become uh, an, an, another tool in the arsenal of architects, um, access to tools, access to ideas that can be uh, much more useful at a local um, relevant scale. Thank you very much. You're listening to Living Cities Forum podcast. This podcast comes as part of our 2022 forum, where we discuss material flows, a theme that examines the global material flows that underwrite our growing built environments. For more, visit livingcitiesforum.org or subscribe to the Amphibian podcast.